Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In uh, this episode, uh, we will be beginning our look at Francis Parkman Jr.'s A Half Century of Conflict. This was the final book he wrote in his seven-volume series on um, French, the French in North America. Um, it's the sixth chronologically. If you were to read this as a straight-up history, it's the sixth one you would read, even though it was published last. There's really no good reason to read this in order of publication. Uh, the reason you get this discontinuity is he, he had such health problems. Parkman was so um, plagued by blindness. He couldn't see. He just had bad health his entire life since he was young. And that actually makes the whole writing of this epic even more amazing. But when he finished uh, the Count Frontenac book, he didn't think he was going to live um, much longer. So that book was published in, I have that written down, 1877. Uh, so he would live another 20 years after this, after that book was published, but he didn't think he would, or he doubted he would. So he went to this, this huge task still before him, which was Montcalm and Wolfe. Um, this is the book about the Seven Years' War in North America, or the French and Indian War, even though kind of all these wars we've been talking about are the French and Indian Wars. Um, the, the one you, from your High school textbook, the French and Indian War is the Seven Years' War, right? Uh, that is a 600-page book. It, it's the largest of all of them in the series. It, it's about a quarter of the bulk of the entire you know, seven-volume set. So it was a really big job, and he wanted to get it done because that was kind of the capstone project for him. It's what everything is building up towards, his whole argument. Um, but then after he published that, he went back and wrote A Half Century of Conflict to fill in the, the, the gap chronologically between these two books. So that is the, that's what this book does. It's a very, very straightforward book. Uh, it was published, by the way, in 1892. Parkman would die in 1894. So it is the last thing he published in history, um, in, the, in the field of history. Maybe published some other articles or things. I know he was involved in the anti-suffrage movement, education reform, and, and some other issues. but. As far as history, this is the last thing he he wrote, um, and it is a very very straightforward um, volume. I think it's maybe the most straightforward of them all. I guess Montcalm and Wolfe is sort of two because it's just like a straight up military history of of the Seven Years' War in North America. This one um, basically it tells two stories. It, on the one hand, it tells the story of of the two conflicts we the, that that. Um, that took place in the 18th century before the Seven Years' War. There were four of these so-called French and Indian Wars, right? Just so, just to recap, the first is of King William's War, which was the Nine Years' War, or the War of the League of Augsburg, um, the War of the Grand Alliance sometimes in North America. All right, so you have a different name in North America, and they often had different names from the French or the, obviously, the British perspective. These names I'm given are the, are the English-British names. Um, then you have uh, Queen Anne's War, which is the War of the Spanish Secession 
and again fought in the Americas. So it was another war between where France and England were on opposing sides, and that was the last of the wars of Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, fought while Queen Anne was was Queen of England, the last of the Stuart monarchs, uh, as a matter of fact, um, and. That was really about Louis XIV's attempt to put a bourbon on the throne of, of Spain. He failed in that. It was a major defeat for him. And the and anyways, that, that conflict in the Americas, and there was great losses for the French in the Americas as a result of that war, too, was called Queen Anne's War, where most of the fighting was in Maine uh, and Acadia. Uh, some other places too, but majority of what Parkman's interested in is the fighting in Acadia and in the frontiers of Maine and Massachusetts. The third is uh, King George's War, or the War of the Austrian Secession. Um, that was um, a war of aggression by Prussia against Austria over the crowning of Maria Theresa. Well, that was the justification. Um, and that war in, in, in the Americas was called King George's War. And that took place in the, 18th, in the 1740s, right? So after that, there was just a 10 years of peace. And then you get the Seven Years' War, which started out as another war between Austria and Prussia, but broke out into a European-wide conflict almost immediately. And that was the, 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 the war that makes up the bulk of the final volume in this series, Montcalm and Wolf. So... Uh, this volume covers Queen Anne's War and King George's War. Now, that's one story it tells. The other story it tells is it, it, something Parkman does a lot in his writing, which is he's kind of like, he's got these, this broad story, and, and most of these books have a kind of narrative, but they often have a lot of little side stories that he's interested in or think are important to know. It's almost like, uh, like a sidebar kind of thing. Um, you know. And if you remember, like in the LaSalle book, the third third volume, LaSalle in the Great West, there's a, a part where he talks about this guy who goes off to live with the Sioux, right, and, and one of these early French explorers to go out to Minnesota. You know, that's not really the story of LaSalle, but it kind of is marginal to it, and it needed to go somewhere. There's uh, a few of those here, and they mostly deal with the West, again, so things like the Dakotas, the search for the Pacific, uh, a little bit on Louisiana, um, all that. So kind of the Great West, beyond the Mississippi um, West, and the role of the French in exploring that and discovering it. So that story is told here as, as well. But like these last two volumes, Half Century Conflict and One Common Wolf, are more straight kind of military histories. That's the dominant thing but they they're they're the same kind of literary quality we've come to expect um, the same kind of uh, thematic focus about the contrast between the development of France and the development of of, of the British colonies the, the, the development of the French colonies versus the development of the British colonies in North America and how that led to different types of development leading ultimately to the victory of the British system in in the Americas all right, so that's my introduction to a half century of conflict. Um, in the first 100 pages or so, by the way, this book is, it's about 500 pages, but about 100 pages of that is appendix, which are just sources. And, you know, Parkman is a decent historian. Whatever faults we can give him now, you know, are just, you know, he was 
of course, like every historian, limited in the sources he had available to him, limited by his own historical context and perspective. Um, but he did care about sources, and he did try to draw everything from primary sources. And he talked about this in the introductions to the books. And from time to time, he would include appendixes with these sources. Um, in fact, this is almost like a mini source book. Some of it's in French, though. Quite a lot of it is the original French, so didn't read it. Um, and actually, Molcom and Wolf is even longer. I think there's almost 200 pages of, maybe not 200, but another 100 pages or so of, of appendixes with different primary sources. So, um, yeah. Um, so the first 100 pages of this particular book uh, covers mostly Queen Anne's War in Acadia and a few other issues, but um, that's the focus of it. So. Uh, the first chapter is called The Eve of War, Eve of War, 1700 to 1713, which is kind of weird. I, I always find Parkman's dates weird. Like, the Eve of War, the war begins in like 1702, right? I think it's fought 1702 to 1713 or 1714. Maybe 1714 is when Louis XIV dies. It, it's pretty much fought to the end of his days. So the Eve of War should be like 1700 to 1702 or something, but... No, it covers almost the whole length of the war, the chapter called The Eve of War. He does this a lot. I'll give another example of this, where the dates he includes don't often parallel very closely the story he's, he's telling. Um, so I don't know how he made these decisions. But um, obviously, uh, the cause of this war is, is rooted in part the Peace of Ryswick, which gave, um, which was a defeat for Louis XIV. Um, basically, it kind of kept the borders in the New World the same, but it was a strategic defeat for them in Europe. And so there's though that kind of uh, desire to reclaim France's place. He, Louis XIV certainly wanted France to be the central power in Europe. And the chance came with the, when the, the king of Spain died. He was, was a long-lived king who was kind of not really fully mentally competent. Um, but he lived for a very long time, and uh, when he died, there was a secession question. And so the, I guess it was the Habsburg or the Bourbons both had claims. Of course, the French pursued their claim by putting a Bourbon monarch. Eventually, a Bourbon does get uh, on the throne. That's what I remember from the War of the Spanish Secession. But it had to be kind of completely, it was, in the peace, it had to be completely separate from France. So it couldn't be a power grab by France. Um, but anyways, th that was the cause of, of the war. And, in, and of course, in the Americas, there's always the local geopolitics. There's always the local relations with the Iroquois, the fishing rights off Acadia, you know, the fighting over especially Acadia and some of these frontier lands. The different governors in the British colonies might have had different goals. And that's certainly the case here. For instance, the... New Yorkers, for instance, were unprepared for war and did not really want war. And we saw in the previous volume, actually, the Count Frontenac book, that New York was a major player in the fighting between the Iroquois and the French because they were trying to acquire uh, the Iroquois as an ally against the, against the French. Um, and eventually the French forced the Iroquois to their policy of, of neutrality. But, uh, you know, here's what he writes. Quote, if New York had cause to complain of those whom she sheltered, 
She herself gave cause to complaint to those who sheltered her. The five nations of the Iroquois had always been her allies against the French and guarded her borders and fought her battles. What they wanted in return was gifts, attentions, just dealings, and activate in war. But got, they got them in scant measure. The treatment was a province of short-sighted, if not ungrateful. New York was a mixture of races and religions, had not yet fused in a harmonious body politic, divided up interests and torn with intestine disputes. Its assembly was made up in large part of men unfitted to pursue a constant scheme of policy or send a little money at their disposal on the objects of those of presence or viable interests. So um, New York was kind of isolated. It had this diversity. It didn't have this internal unity. And it didn't really have a geopolitical much to gain by another war with France. So, they, so New York sort of sits out the war here. Um, factions among the five nations, too. And the result of this is it ends up being kind of New England versus New France. Um, now, yes, the British are going to send an expedition to Quebec, and it fails pathetically. Um, but largely, it's going to be fought on the New England frontier and in Acadia. So actually, Wikipedia has a kind of a subset of entries on the War of Spanish Secession in North America. It's part of the larger series on the War of the Spanish Secession. Um, and they put three main fronts, Quebec and Newfoundland, Acadia, New York, Carolina, and Florida. Now, Parkman doesn't talk anything about Carolina and Florida, the fighting around St. Augustine and places like that, but um, focusing on all these battles in Acadia, New England, and the attempts uh, to take Quebec and a couple battles in Newfoundland. Uh, Parkman often just combines Newfoundland and Acadia into, into, one, into one front when he writes. But we should be precise here. I think I haven't really talked about French Acadia as a, as a separate province because it it's it's not it's it's bigger than just Nova Scotia, where it's it's commonly seen as uh, Nova Scotia is as old French Acadia. But um, so it includes uh, Nova Scotia. Port Royal was the capital, right? Um, then, I mean, Nova Scotia was the name the British gave it. After they, after they conquer it. Um, New Brunswick, um, which at a time was part of Nova Scotia after that. Ile Royale, um, Port Royal. Um, Ile St. John, which is Prince Edward's Island. Uh, so Cape Breton Island is Ile Royale. And Prince Edward Island is, was under the French Ile St. John. And part of Maine, uh, the eastern, east of the Kennebec. So most of Maine. Um, and that doesn't join the New England colonies until 1727. So Acadia was actually a fairly large area. It's like a whole big chunk province of French Canada. So basically, it's everything north of the Kennebec, south of the St. Lawrence. That whole region was, was French Acadia. And the British later divided it up into the, into the provinces of Canada we know today of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward's Island. Um, so, um, yeah, anyways, um, but that's chapter one. Chapter one is just kind of setting up why it was that New England was, was positioned to, to fight this war alone um, against, against New France. And it really has to do with kind of the more neutrality of, of, of New York and the lack of kind of a unity and a, and a clear political objective in New York. Um, all right, chapter two is is another one of those side quests that Parkman's always writing about. You know, it had to be somewhere, so he put it here. Um, actually, because this goes back to the 
to, to the Count Frontenac stuff. So this could have been a good chapter in that book, but he didn't tell he didn't tell that story in there. And this is the story of the founding of Detroit. So this is the story of Cadillac, La Motha Cadillac, Antoine de La Motha Cadillac. That's his name. Um, obviously, you know the name of the car comes from this guy. Um, you know Pontiac too, for that matter. A lot of uh, car names are t tied to Detroit history and um, and Michigan history. But anyways, this is just the story of the founding of, of Detroit. Um, and, you know, as a center of the fur trade, right? And this was one of Frontenac's goals. Because I, I think Parkman doesn't really deal with this directly in the Count Frontenac book. But it seems that one of the greatest achievements of Frontenac is just like setting up a French, a strong French position in the West through the creation of different forts. And here's just one of them that gets established, which is going to be the foundation for France in the, in, in the West. And it's, you know, obviously going to be of critical importance to Pontiac's revolt, as we've already seen. It's basically the walls of Detroit where, where Pontiac's revolt um, fell and failed. So anyway, that's there if you want to read that story. Um, chapter 3, Queen Anne's War, 1703 to 1713. So this is not the story of the whole war. Um, instead, it's the story of the forest of Maine, um, where most of this fighting seemed to take place. Um, and actually, he starts out here with a very, very fascinating look at Maine ecology um, and, you know, the nature of the forests of Maine, kind of the very the wildness of it. Um, even he even gets a little bit into ecology here, I think, inadvertently, talking about their, how the woods of Maine have an aristocracy even, right? And the, you know, the, the different rankings of the trees, kind of a systems, kind of almost getting to a systems idea of, of how the forests of Maine um, work. And the, the reason he's interested in this is this is where the fighting would, would take place. This is where the violence would be inflicted. And we end up with very, very personal stories of war. It's actually pretty wonderful stuff. I think I think this is some of like Parkman's best writing on on just the nitty-gritty brutality of, of war. He does a very, very good job here talking about the people of Maine as, as some sort of offshoots of New England, but but a kind of like a weird mutation or corruption of the people of of New England. Um, where's that description? Yeah, the settlements of Maine were a dependency of Massachusetts, a position that did not please their inhabitants, but which they accepted because they needed the help of their Puritan neighbors, from whom they differed widely both in their qualities and in their faults. The Indian wars that checked their growth had kept them in a condition more than half barbarous. They were a hard-working and hard-drinking race. For though tea and coffee were scarcely known, the land flowed with New England rum, which was ranked among the necessities of life. The better sort could read and write in a bungling way, but many were wholly illiterate. And if not, not till long after Queen Anne's War, that the mortar settlements established schools taught by poor students from Harvard or less competent instructors and held at first in private houses or under sheds. Um, a great description of, of kind of a frontier people. But this is where, you know, this fighting begins. And the first battle was this attack on the a settlement of Wells. And we get the very, very personal story of a man named Stephen Hardy, who, you know, is... You know, his family's attacked. I mean, he's just a hunter, blacksmith, and tavern keeper. And Parkman somehow, from some sources, have has a very intimate story 
of of him and the kidnapping of his of his of his wife. Um, you know, pretty horrific stuff. But I think Parkman's very very great at describing just the the violence of of this frontier warfare. Very very personal stories of war. I really like this stuff. I think it's. Um, quite quite beautiful and this is carried on in the very very next chapter called Deerfield it's another one of those weird dated chapters it's 1704 to 1740 but mostly it's the battle of Deerfield which was a event of 1704 early in the war and it's just there's like the long-term consequences of this fighting that kind of extended to 1744 but you don't really get the story of Deerfield for 35 years it's the story of the battle and the and the consequence for the people. Um, but here, another, like my favorite chapter in this whole book, actually, the Half Century of Conflict, Deerfield, gets uh, right into the nitty-gritty of a frontier town of Deerfield, just, or, just one, of, one of several of these frontier communities, but it becomes a war zone of, of intense violence and, and you know, door-to-door -door fighting, children being murdered, massacres whole families being kidnapped and captured or killed really really nasty stuff um where i got a little bit of this here yeah i'm not going to read the whole thing though it's a long description but it's really well done and there's one where a moment where we see people hiding like in a in a building while there's there there's bullets coming in it's it's very well done i don't know how he has the sources to get that much detail i, I have heard that parkman's been criticized of kind of a little bit of flights of fancy when it comes to telling this but you kind of want to do that when you write military narrative military history and and stuff like that you want to give it kind of a human face and and you kind of got to pick out from what you do have in front of you the evidence into a realistic depiction of of, of what had happened there now, the other thing, reason I like this Deerfield chapter is Parkman goes into a lot of detail about the ultimate consequences and experiences of captives and prisoners. Um, men, women, children who are captured by, of course, Indians were the ones sent to do most of this fighting, but they got captured and they, they sometimes they were integrated into Indian tribes. Often they ended up in French Canada where this effort was made to convert them. Right. And so he's got these very detailed stories about uh, the efforts to convert these people. Um, like here we got the story here of um, um, a, a captain named Williams. Right. And he's he's going to be part of like a prisoner exchange over the gut with the governor or with his Captain Baptiste, the French Captain Baptiste. Um, and here's, here's a little bit of the story. Um, quote, he was soon sent down the river to Quebec along with the superior of the Jesuits. Here he was lodged for seven weeks with a member of the council who treated him kindly, but told him that if he did not avoid intercourse with the other English prisoners, he'd be sent farther away. He saw much of the Jesuits who courteously asked him to dine, though he says that one of them afterwards made some Latin verses about him in which he was likened to a captive wolf. Another Jesuit told him that when the mission Indians set out on their raid against Deerfield, he charged them to baptize all the children before killing them. Such, he said, was his desire for the salvation even of his enemies. To murdering the children after they were baptized, he appears to have made no objection. William said that in their dread, 
In their dread, lest he should prevent the conversion of the other prisoners, the missionaries promised him a pension from the king and free intercourse with his children and neighbors if he would embrace the Catholic faith and return to and remain in Canada. To which he answered that he would do so without reward if he thought the religion was true, but that he believed the contrary. The offer of a whole world would tempt him no more than a blackberry. End quote. So the point here being, there are these efforts to convert these prisoners and get them to stay in in French Canada and essentially become subjects of the King of France um, through through some kind of conversion. So we get the long story of Williams here. It's kind of um, nicely done. He must have had his journal or or something. The footnotes aren't really clear here. Um, Parkman doesn't have the best footnotes. Um, now. This chapter ends with a really, really beautiful kind of stab at the French in general, which uh, it's just great. It's just really nicely done. Um, where is it? So in 1688, the late Abbe Marol, missionary of St. Francis, computed their descendants at 952, in whose veins French, English, and Abenaki blood were mixed in every conceivable proportion. Um, so this is the... These are the descendants of these captives who stayed in New France. Um, going on, he gives the table of genealogy in full and says that, that 200 of the 13 of this prolific race would still bear the surname Gill if, concludes the worthy priest, one should trace out all the English families brought into Canada by the Abenakis. One would be astonished by the number of people who today are indebted to the savages for the blessings of being Catholic and the advantages of being Canadians, an advantage for which French Canadians are so ungrateful that they migrate to the United States by myriads. All right. So that's a great chapter, chapter four, um, Deerfield. Um, then we got chapter five, which is a bit uh, redundant. Uh, Parkman even says as much. He says, like, after the story of Deerfield, you just multiply that by all the frontier towns and you know uh, what the war was like. And the chapter is called The Tormented Frontier, and it's pretty self explanatory. Um, just Parkman, just a little bit to extend. To the general brutality of the war on this in the in the frontier of, of Maine, at borderland of Acadia. So in chapter six, we move to the story of Acadia, which takes them two chapters to tell. Now, the fate of Acadia was well, basically the French lost Acadia to the English in in this war um, permanently, but they've lost it before. I mean, cities were taken and things like that before, but it was always restored in the peace or, or whatever. Um, this time it was permanently handed over. Now the fighting over Acadia would remain. Remember, it's this huge province uh, that the French certainly relied on. It had all this access to this fishing grounds. That was the appeal of Acadia for both sides. And in fact, some of the peace treaties involved, you know, yeah, it's going to stay French, but the English will have certain fishing rights or whatever. So they were... Um, that was the concern. So they'd keep fighting over Acadia. And eventually, I think it's in the part of King George's War, you get the, the exile of the French Acadians to Louisiana, one of the first modern era ethnic cleansings. So uh, Parkman does this in two chapters. The first is called The Old Regime in Acadia, 1700 to 1710. And his, it's a short chapter, but his thesis here is simple. He's just saying Acadia is Canada writ small. So the same problems that are at the, the root of Canada's problems, interfactionalism, the power of the church, 
the conflict between the church and the secular authority, um, the, the focus on fur trade versus settlement and agriculture. All of this stuff um, is the root problem in New France, and it's true in Acadia as well. Um, the same system prevailed in Canada, he writes, but there the field was broader and the men often larger. The effects are less whimsically vivid than they appear under the Acadian microscope. The two provinces, however, ruled alike, and about this time the Canadian intendant Radut was writing to Pochontrain in a strain worthy of de Groot's supercase in Bottenville. So there, there's kind of a, uh, an idea of the sort of spinning the wheels. Uh, everything kind of just remains the same institutionally. And, and no one can really, you know, so it's kind of like first is tragedy, second time is farce, third time farce again. It's, I guess after, um, after the second time, it's, it, if it keeps coming back, it's even more farcical each time. Is that a quote from Marx? First is tragedy, then is farce. Anyways, um, chapter seven, Acadia changes hands. This is a rather long chapter, but it, it discusses the French um, various camp, or the various camp, uh, French and English campaigns, both in Newfoundland and Acadia, um, and eventually the conquest of Acadia after the taking of Port Royal by the, by the, by the English. Um, and then the final chapter that I want to look at today is maybe, yeah, I think it's the last one directly covering the Queen Anne's Award. That's why I included it in this, this episode, and it's called Walker's Expedition. So if you don't know uh, this history, maybe you don't, um, Hoovenden Walker was a, this British admiral who was sent on this expedition from London. It didn't come from New England. It was a massive fleet of ships that was going to go and take Quebec. That was the plan. Um, and the date for that was, I, I pulled up the Wikipedia on this, uh, 1711. So it's towards the end of Queen Anne's War. Um, but it was sent from England, England, so it wasn't just a regional thing. It was actually part of a global um, ambition. And basically the, the goal here was to establish permanently French or English dominance of the sea by taking by taking Quebec. Um, now, obviously, Quebec would be taken, but it would be, you know, 50 years, 50 years later, it would finally be, be done. Um, but um, that was the attempt. Now, basically, what happens is the French get news of this. It was a pretty big fleet, actually. If you look at the Wikipedia entry, it mentions all the ships um, sailed. And it's like three pages of ships. I don't know how to me, you know, some of them are just equipment transports and uh, troop transports and things like that. They're not only 10, only 10 of these are, are gunships. The rest are various um, supporting vessels. So whatever. But, you know, it ended up they go to Boston first and then they set off for the St. Lawrence Valley. But they end up kind of getting lost in the fog and... A bunch of ships like run aground and sink and about a thousand sailors die it's like a really pretty tragic uh actually we've got the names of the ships here that the trans different troop transports um and the, and the losses it was like seven ships or so ran aground and that to stop the expedition right but it was an effort to take quebec 
uh, to land troops near Quebec and you know blockade it and eventually take it. But um, a failure. Um, but that's that's pretty much the whole of what Parkman says about Queen Anne's War. You know, basically focused on Acadia and Quebec and a little bit on Newfoundland. Uh, in the next episode, I'll look at chapters 9 through 14 of A Half Century of Conflict, which um, it's actually kind of a hodgepodge of different issues because it, it basically is covering the years from 1713 to 1750 or so in, a, in various areas. Louisiana, for instance, we get the story of Sebastian Rail, an important um, figure in French-Canadian history. We get uh, a little bit more on Acadia, a little bit more on uh, the West. And then the episode after that, we're going to get a little bit more kind of additional side stories, especially dealing with the West and the search for the Pacific. That'll be the highlight of that episode. And then the final one focuses on King George's War or the War of the Austrian Succession. Um, so that's what's coming ahead. Um, but for now, if you have any questions or thoughts about the War of the Spanish Secession or Queen Anne's War, uh, Acadia, anything like that, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, gmail so we're well on our way. We're, we're over the hump. We're well on our way to getting through this, this series. So thank you for bearing with me as I explore the works of Francis Parkman. And... Um, Hope you're enjoying it, and I will see you next time. Uh, where I continue my